God's word says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. For the sake of your servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What gives you anxiety makes you uncertain about the future? You know, we could all say, well, you shouldn't be anxious. And yet God himself says, cast all your anxieties upon me because I care for you. God knows that we get anxious and worried. Perhaps for you, this last week was anxiety-ridden as you considered the election. Yet one person's anxiety is another person's, eh, who cares? Thus you might not be concerned about politics at all. You might be concerned about your health or that of a family member, and it leaves you tossing and turning. You might be concerned over your job and your relationship with your bosses or co-workers, or even the future of your position leaves you all in knots. Or it might be that your past has significant traumatic events and it leaves you anxious and fearful. What do we do and how do we handle these anxieties, these concerns, these fears? Now, these are not theoretical questions to the people Isaiah is writing to. In the first 39 chapters of this book, he was warning them over and over, you need to repent or God will bring judgment upon you. But they were unwilling to turn from their sin. So God allowed their nation to be destroyed, for Jerusalem to be burned, and the people to be taken into exile. But then, in Isaiah 40, there's a major change in the tenor of the message. Isaiah 40 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so the rest of Isaiah, 40 to the end, is promises of hope, messages of encouragement. Specifically, in this section right before this, he'd warn them, look, 
the false idols, they didn't do anything for you. You're now in exile, but now you can have hope. And they desperately needed to hear this message. Just imagine the place you grew up is destroyed. People you loved were killed in battle, and now you're in a foreign country with strangers who speak a different language, and you're going, what in the world is going on? How can I cope with what is going on in my life? Well, God is going to tell them here that they can trust Him. Because as we just read, we're going to see that God has a plan, so trust. That's in chapter 44, verse 24 through chapter 45, verse 8. Then, after that, in verses 9 through 13, God is going to say, I'm the Creator. So don't question. And then in verses 14 through 25 of chapter 45, He's going to say, I'm the only Savior in God, so turn to me. And then lastly, chapter 46, God's going to declare, I don't need anything, but you can trust my righteousness. So here we are in chapter 44, verse 24, and God is again telling them, these idols can't do anything, just consider. He said, look, you go chop down a piece of wood in the forest, and then you come and you use half of it to heat yourself while you carve the other half and make an idol. That is complete folly. And yet he then goes on to say, look, I'm merciful. If you will return to me, I will blot out your sins. And so he's given them hope that the cause of their suffering, their sin is taken care of. And so he now plans, gives them the plans for how he will deliver them. And yet the situation looks futile. They've been defeated by Babylon, the world's greatest empire at that time. And yet he says in verse 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is reminding them of who he is. He's their Redeemer. And what does the word, the title Redeemer come from? It comes from God when he brought them out of Egypt. Exodus 6, 6 says, I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. In other words, he's saying, remember your past. You had been under the world's greatest empire, and I redeemed you then. I can do it again. More than that, he goes on and he says, I'm the creator. I made all things. I stretched out the heavens. He even says, I made you in the womb. I formed you. And so he's letting them know, I just don't care personally about you, though I do. I'm the creator of everything. You know, often at that time, they had this mindset, well, Yahweh, he's the God of that kind of Palestinian area, but then Baal, he's the God of the northern hills, and then Marduk, he's the God of Egypt. They all are local deities. And God is saying, no, I'm not a localized national deity. I'm the creator of the universe. I control Babylon, I control Egypt, and thus you can trust me. Don't turn to gods of wood and stone. Turn to the one who made every ounce and splinter of wood, an ounce of gold. Not only does he create it, but verse 25, he shows that he still rules over it. So don't look to people who give omens, people who give horoscopes. They don't control the future. He does. We have a bad track record of predicting the future. We're 90% sure this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. We think this team's going to win. It's a sure bet. And then they lose. 
We don't know the future, but there is one who is Lord of history, who has been right 100% of the time, and that is God. And then he gives this amazing promise, verse 26, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. All they picture is the smoldering ruins as they were driven to Babylon, and yet God is saying, it will come back. He will rebuild. God can do this because he's the God who dries the seas and dries the rivers. Now, this is not metaphorical language. They should know. He dried the Red Sea. He dried the Jordan River that we can go through. If he could do that, he can restore Jerusalem. And so then he continues and he gives them the reminders of he is in control. You know, often what we need is not new circumstances, is that we need to know who is in control of every circumstance of our life. That is how we can have comfort and strength in the midst of the trial. And yet then he says something shocking. He says he's going to do all this by, verse 28, Cyrus. Now, at this point, there is nobody they know of named Cyrus, and Cyrus is a Gentile name. What? You're going to deliver Israel through a Gentile? This doesn't make sense. And we're going to see their questions later on. And yet God doesn't just say he's going to raise him through Cyrus. Notice that what he calls him. Cyrus, my shepherd. Verse 45, verse 1. Cyrus, my anointed. Meaning Messiah. What? Uh, the Messiah is going to be a Gentile? Well, we know ultimately this is just a little picture of the grand picture of redemption that will come through a son of David, Jesus. And yet here we are again seeing God works and controls history, even using Jewish and non-Jewish leaders. In this time, Cyrus, the Gentile. And he's going to use Cyrus, he goes on to say in chapter 45, so that Cyrus and the world might know that God, Yahweh, the Lord, is God. And that God always works for his people. God controls every circumstance. <laughs> Thus, you didn't plan that, did you? they should know that God is always working for his glory and his people's good. That's interesting. Cyrus, probably not even alive. Cyrus doesn't know God's name, but God knows Cyrus' name. And so Israel can trust him. They can know that God can be trusted. And so we have to ask the same question. Do we trust? Do we follow the Lord? Even though the moment, the circumstance in front of us looks bleak. You know, amazingly, 40 years later, at least 40 years later, this comes true. You can read in Ezra chapter 1 where a man, the ruler now, Cyrus says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And he paid for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem with his money. Now Cyrus didn't just do this for Israel. He did it for other nations. But who is the one who controls every king? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Thus it was true then. And it is true today that God directs, 
God appoints and God rules every ruler, whether their name is Cyrus or Bush, Obama or Trump, Biden or any whoever might come next, Democrat or Republican. God controls all. He could predict Cyrus, even down to his name, because God is the ruler of history and he has a plan. And he has a plan, he says in verse 6, that they may know that I am the Lord and there is no other. He goes on and says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And we see this reality in the tragedy of Job. In a day, he lost all his wealth. In a day, he lost his health. In the day he lost his children. And what, do his, what does his wife say? Job 2.9 Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Should we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil or calamity? And then the amazing thing is, right after that, it says... And Job did not sin with his mouth. The Bible does not then say, well, Job was mistaken. <laughs> he was wrong. Actually, all good stuff's from God. Anything bad, that's the forces of evil that are fighting God. No, God controls everything. He controls every event of our life. And Job's response, this story helps us see several things about God's sovereignty. First, it helps us see that just because God works all things for good doesn't mean all things are good. Job said, does not God, the Lord send calamity? Death is death. Suffering is suffering. Moral evil is moral evil. Yes, in a wonderful way we can trust God because he redeems those things and he uses them for good, but they are bad in and of themselves. Second, it reminds us that God is in control and thus, no bad circumstance has ever happened in which he is now in a hurry to clean up. Oh, didn't see that coming. Let me clean all this mess up. We don't always know why he allows each event. And some of this is a mystery, but God is clearly in control of all. You're wrongly, we often take God's goodness for granted each day, but then rail against him when sufferings come. I've, I've never opened up a newspaper or a magazine or online website and seen an editorial. God has been good for my whole lifetime, giving me bread every day. But quite often after a hurricane or a typhoon or a mass shooting, you can open up an editorial, where is God? We want to rail against Him when things are bad. But where was the thanks for the day in and day out? Second after second, keeping my heart beating. We only want to curse. We don't want to trust. And third, this reminds us, you can worship God. You can praise Him even in your grief. Job is grieving. He's not dancing. You can worship God even as you are having a downcast spirit. You can trust Him by turning to Him with your suffering. And so, believer, take comfort you can trust God that every circumstance is in His control. He has a plan, so trust Him. He is the Redeemer. 
He's the creator. He's the Lord of history. And yet while this is true, some of Isaiah's listeners are accusatorily questioning God. And we see that next in verses 9 through 13. And so God responds, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or what is this work that has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. And for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. You know, most likely, they're shocked. They're angry because God is going to restore them through a Gentile. And so they accusatorily question him. And yet he says, this is ridiculous. This is as ridiculous as a pot questioning the potter. Or a baby in the womb sending a text saying, why would you just give me brown DNA? I don't want brown hair, I want blonde. You can't do that. It's created. It has no choice over what happens to it. I grew up enjoying Legos, and my children have enjoyed playing them. And yet, not once in my life have I finished something, and then it turned and said, why'd you give me these wheels? It doesn't talk. I'm the creator. And if someone else goes, why'd you do it that way? He goes, I wanted to. I made it. So I can make it however I want. The creator has the right to do with their creation as they deem best. And yet, though it doesn't make sense, we often switch the roles and say, no, we should be able to challenge the creator. We should be able to say to him, why are you acting like this? C.S. Lewis writes, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is on trial. Man is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and even disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You know, really, that's the ultimate foundation of all sin is that we look at God's world or God's word and we go, do I think it's right? Nah. Yeah. And we are acting as though we stand over God and his word rather than under it. That we are judged by it, not judges over it. And yet as Americans, we have a hard time with this because we think we should always be able to challenge authority. Benjamin Franklin, the founding father, said, It is the first responsibility of every citizen to question authority. You know, in a representative democracy, on some level that's true. And if we don't like a leader, we can talk about it, we can write about it, and we can vote him out of office. However, there is a world, actually a universe of difference between the U.S. government and God's government. In the U.S., we have fallible created humans leading other fallible created humans. In God's government, we have the infallible, eternally existing creator ruling fallible 
humans. There's no comparison between the two. And yet God emphasizes, verses 11 and 12, that He's their creator. He calls them His children, the work of His hands, that He formed Israel. And thus He questions, as the creator, don't I have a right to do with you as I want? Doesn't God have rights? You know, in the U.S., we love talking about rights. But since God created us, doesn't He have rights too? Why does the Creator have to tell us what He is doing and why He is doing it? Now, to be clear, the Bible is not calling us to have supposed blind faith where we look and go, well, everything's good, everything's fine. No, we call evil, evil. We call good, good. The point is, God will always do what is best, whether we understand it or not. And God always acts in line with His righteous character. And He makes that clear in verse 13. I have stirred Him up in righteousness. You may not understand how, why and how I'm raising a Gentile to bring you back, but it's being done in righteousness. It's being done in justice. You can trust me, He is saying. And again, we see this happen in the book of Ezra. Yet the heinous of all this is that they're challenging God. And when are they challenging God? When they're already in exile. These are people who are in exile for their rebellion and they still haven't learned. They're still going, well, why'd you do it, God? Well, yes, we want to come back, but we're not going to come back that way. You've got to restore us the way we want to be restored. And God's saying, no, I am the ruler. I'm the creator. You need to submit to me. One of my favorite comics is Calvin and Hobbes, which features a six-year-old boy and his stuffed tiger. In one strip, which he, the comic man, Bill Watterson, uses quite often, is when Calvin comes to his dad with the latest in the polls. And this time he approaches and says, Dad, your polls took a big dive this week. Your overall dad performance rating was quite low. He then hands his dad a clipboard and he says, see, right here, your popularity yesterday went down the tubes. His dad then explodes and says, Calvin, you didn't get dessert yesterday because you flooded the house. Calvin then smugly walks away and says, I'd suggest a new line of work, Dad. You know, we laugh. You can't challenge your parents when they justly punished you for something. You may not like it, and your approval of your parents may be way low. Doesn't matter. They're in control. You don't get to say how popular your parents are. If you disobey and they punish, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we feel about God. You can give God a 100% approval rating or a 0%. He is still God. And so you don't need to question Him. Thus, we have to ask, am I submitting to the plans of my Creator or do I go through life accusatorily questioning him and his rule? Now we need to be clear. The point is not that you can't ask questions. Jesus himself said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a question. He asked, can this cup be taken from me? The Psalms over and over have questions of God about why this is happening. The point is, one is saying, God, I want to understand. The other is an accusation and a fist saying, why did you allow this? And so, yes, come to God with your questions. Come with your lament saying, why is this going on? 
but the why of a child pleading to understand, not a child demanding that their parents change. And yet the goal is not mainly here to put them in their place, so to speak. God is trying to give them hope and comfort. And yet hope and comfort will never come to them or us if we're only challenging God and not turning to Him. And we see that in verses 14 through 25, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 45, 14 through 25, which says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You should not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. Who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. And there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness. A word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said to me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so here again, he says, you can trust me because all the wealth of the nations, verse 13, sorry, verse 15 is going to come to you. Not only the wealth of the nations, they're going to come in chains. Well, this is a rather miraculous promise. In contrast, those who are worshiping idols, verse 16, are going to be ashamed and confounded. You know, Israel is not going to be ashamed forever because they're ultimately going to have an eternal salvation. And though these promises seem impossible, they must look past their circumstances to the Creator, verse 18 shows us. Again, this is not blind faith. It's trusting in the God who is always been able to act. He's the God who called a universe into existence by a word. He's the God who caused Sarah to give birth when she was 90 years old. He's the God who worked through Israel's dysfunctional family and the selling of their brother into slavery to save the world and bring deliverance through famine. He is the God who delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery by miraculous signs and wonders. And so Israel could and should rehearse who God is. That he's the God who does the impossible. And so while they're the ones who just have their wealth taken. And they're the ones who are still in chains. They can know that God will one day make all this 
come to pass. They can know this, verse 19 tells us, because God is not a God who speaks in secrecy. He's not a God who is cruel and telling them all these things, and then one day going to say, ha I was just joking. I really got you there, didn't I? You thought you were going to be restored. No, he says this because he loves them. He says this because he controls it. He declares what is just and right, and he never lies. I think part of the challenge in all of this is we tend to have a short-term view. We get focused on the immediate circumstance right in front of us. All the Israelites can see is chains in another country, and yet God has a bigger plan. I've had the privilege of helping at least four people learn how to ride a bike. And to a person, they all had the same issue. And that is, they looked right here and tried to make sure that their tire was straight. And so there was a lot of jerking back and forth. And I kept telling them, stop looking down and look up and find a point in the distance and then your tire will go straight. As long as you're focused on the immediate, you're going to always be adjusting too much. If you look in the future, you will have a sure point and you'll go straight. And you know what the response was. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. That's great advice. No, you're trying to kill me. You hate me. Why are you making me ride this bike? I want to quit. You're so mean. <clears throat> what was going on? People were looking at their immediate circumstances and doing what we do with God. Because you're making me do this hard thing right now. You don't love me. Yes, you told me to do this other thing and I'm not doing it. But that doesn't matter. I'm still going through this bad time right now. And you are mean and you're cruel. And God's saying, lift your eyes. Look past what's here. Look to the distance. I have a plan that's much bigger than any election. I got a plan for all eternity. So trust me, lift your eyes to the future. Yes, the plan does involve pain now. He's not denying that. But the pain is going to lead to something much greater. God has declared, look, I'm the creator. I'm the ruler of history. And so then he calls all the nations, verse 20, all of you assemble and draw yourself to me. He then kind of mocks them. Are they going to trust in their own gods? Are they going to argue back? They can't even speak, he says. There's no other gods beside him. And thus God calls the nations, again, verse 22, to come to him. This is rather shocking because God just punished them, and yet God wants to welcome them back. You know, his punishment is never merely to punish. He wants to deliver. He wants his mercy to triumph over judgment. And yet if we will not hear the warnings, he will keep his word and he will give the judgment. And so the question for them, for the nations and for us, is will we respond and bow the knee? The reality is you can do it now or you will do it later. We see this when Jesus comes. He's going through the nation of Israel and evil spirits are encountered. And Mark 3.11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They didn't want to. They had to. Because one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess. So you can do it now joyfully. And that's the good news. It is a delight to serve God. It is a burden to serve yourself or other gods. And so he tells us this not to 
crush us, but to liberate us, to free us. And God's graciously calling us, not because he needs us, but because we need him. And we see that lastly in chapter 46, that God needs nothing. So we can trust his righteousness. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 1, it says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beast and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who've been born by, by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare to me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. And then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands in a corner. You can't move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from my righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So he gives this contrast. Bel, the god of Babylon, and his son Nebo. How do they get wherever they are worshipped? They got to put it on an ox. They have to put it on a cart. And they have to carry it there. In contrast to these gods who have to be carried, notice what he says. He says, I have carried you. I, the God, carry you. You don't need to carry me. He says, I carried you from the wound. I'll carry you to your gray hair. I'm going to carry you all your life. You don't need to carry me. I need nothing. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And when we see who God really is, he's saying, nothing can be compared to him. There's nothing like him. And then he continues to point out the insanity of idolatry. They use gold and they go buy gold idols. It's the very thing they use to purchase it. It doesn't make any sense. Then they have to carry the very God they just bought and then they put it on a shelf and when they talk to it, it doesn't respond. Now as Westerners, we, yeah, that's pretty silly. Talking to something carved or made out of metal. And yet we should realize that God's mocking is not limited to physical idols. When God talks about idols, he's referring to anything that we look to for ultimate security, ultimate hope, ultimate comfort. Thus many people turn to their bank accounts, their health, their relationships, their possessions to give them ultimate comfort. And the Bible shows us while all those things are important, they're good in their own right, they will not ultimately give you peace. They will not ultimately give you security. Our ultimate hope 
must be in the Lord. Part of the folly of idols is that we think they can carry us for our entire life. Let me give one political example. Considering our nation, are we going to have religious freedoms? You may know in 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed unanimously, all 435 in the House. It was voted by 97 to 3 in the Senate, and the three in the Senate only had quibbles about it. They weren't really opposed to the thing, and then it was signed into law. Do you know who authored the bill? A man named Chuck Schumer. You may have heard of him. He's the Democratic leader in the House. So 1993, basically the whole country says, we want religious freedom. Less than two decades later, the state of Indiana wanted to basically put the exact same law as a state, not just a federal law. And you know what the nation did? Ugh, people want a theocracy. We have freedoms. We shouldn't have, have this law about religious freedom. In less than two decades, what everyone agreed upon, and we thought, oh, if we can just get it in our laws, then we'll be safe, is gone. Even one major legal scholar, Chai Feldblum, said, I cannot come up with one hypothetical situation in which the sexual liberty and religious liberty would be in conflict when sexual liberty shouldn't win. Not one hypothetical situation. Now, I, I could think of some hypothetical situations where I should lay down some of my religious liberties for sexual liberties. But you can't think of one? So in less than two decades, we went from unanimous, we have freedoms, yes, it's in laws, if we can just get the right judges, if we can get the right president, the right people in Congress, we'll be fine. Two decades, and it's gone. Don't put your trust in politics. Now, are they bad? Am I saying you shouldn't vote? No. God works through means, and those things are important. But who is going to secure our freedoms and rights? It's not any bill. It's the creator of the universe. And who's to say two decades from now it might be better? Don't look at the circumstance in front of you. Look to the future and the one who is the Lord of history. Don't put your trust in any party or politician, the U.S. economy, or anything besides God. He goes on in verse 8, because we can trust in God when we remember who he is and who we are. And when we do that, he says we can stand firm. And so we have to remember who we are. And who are we? We're transgressors. Whoa, <laughs> that wasn't really a word of encouragement. Pastor Jeremy, I was looking for that. You're wonderful. You got great self-esteem and you say, remember, you're a sinner. How is that encouraging? Well, because God remembers. And what has he been promising? That he's going to restore us. And if we remember that God knows our condition, and yet he still says, I want to help you, then there's comfort. Our sins have been taken care of in Christ. Remember who I am. And then that reminds me of who God is. He's the God who saves, who cares. And this is really good news because when you know the problem, you actually can have help. Many of us have had medical conditions and we go to a doctor and they run tests and then they go, we don't know what's wrong with you. And that's not exactly the best news. You're kind of going, but I have these problems. I want to know what it is. And God says, you want to know why the world's a mess? You're sinners. Okay, we know that, but then there's a great solution. I'm the Savior, he says. I'm the one who will bring forth righteousness. And so he tells them they can trust in him. 
Because God is the one who not only rules over history, he declares it, he says. He's the one who controls it. You know, God's not just a great chess player. You know, a great chess player really has no idea what you're going to do next, but he's going to beat whatever your move is. God is not a great chess player. God is the one who declares all that we're going to do. He even declared that Cyrus would be the name of the Gentile ruler who would come and deliver Israel. It's interesting, the predictions in Isaiah are so accurate that so-called biblical scholars say Isaiah is actually not a book. It's actually two, maybe three books. There's Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1, 39, and then there's Isaiah 2, 40 through 55, and then there's maybe Isaiah 3, 56 through 65. And do you know how we know there's at least two or three books? Because no one could tell this stuff in advance. So this is clearly several books. Now let's just think about that for a second. Isaiah is trying to comfort these people that God is in control, so he's going to make up things like their prophecies when they all know they happened in the past in their history and go, hey, you should trust this God who can predict the history, though I wrote the news because it happened yesterday, but you can trust him. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Isaiah is clearly predicting the future. Isaiah is one book. The problem is not that it's accurate and so it couldn't have been history or prediction. It's history. The problem is that we don't believe God. That he can and does control the future. And that he knows all things. He's the one, verse 10, 11, that says, who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God does not merely have great perception of the future. God declares it. He does not merely hope that it will happen. He purposed it and he will do it. And so the question is for us, verse 12, will we listen or will we be stubborn of heart? Will we, verse 13, draw near to him in the righteousness that he's given us? Or will we rebel against him, questioning his authority? Can you trust God? I've shared often of the Ten Booms, the family that helped Jews as they were trying to stay safe during World War II. And as the beginning of the war was going on, there were often dogfights at night between British and German planes. In the night, and one night, there was a dogfight, and Corey writes that as she heard it, she heard her sister Betsy making tea downstairs. So she went down, and they drank their tea for an hour. They weren't going to sleep anyways. Finally, the fighting stopped, so she went upstairs, and she stumbled towards her bed, and she put her finger out to get in the bed, and all of a sudden, she felt something. And she felt blood running down her hand, and she grabbed it more carefully, and it was a 10-inch piece of metal that was sharp and jagged right on her pillow. And so she ran downstairs, and as Betsy bandaged her hand, she said, Betsy, if I hadn't heard you in the kitchen making tea, I would have... And Betsy replied, don't say it, Corey. There are no ifs in God's world and no places that are safer than others. The center of his will is our only safety. Oh, Corey, let us pray that we may always know it. 
Let's pray that way. Oh Lord, we do have trials and circumstances that seem as though the world is out of control. And Lord, we do lament at the way our country and our own hearts have gone at times. And yet, Lord, we know that in all, we can trust you. Would you give us hearts that can always know that? Lord, may we be people who live faithfully through the good times and the bad, praising you when it's good and calling out to you when it's bad, knowing that you are the one who carries us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.